Let's pray that God would give us understanding of his word. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do pray that you might give us open hearts and minds to what you have to say to us through your word this morning. And especially we ask it as we continue to consider what it means to be your church this year. Amen. Uh, Well, I've said it before, but uh, when I first moved to Shenton Park, I noticed that it is a very unusual suburb. First of all, no pub. What sort of a suburb in Australia has no pub? And then I found out the full story. I found out actually they sold the pub off and they turned it into a block of retirement apartments. It's a disgrace. Uh, Secondly, uh, the thing I noticed was that really uh, the schools, in particular Rosalie over the road, uh, they really are the centre of the community here in Shenton Park. There's a certain pride that people have in this suburb about their schools. And schools, they're academic institutions, aren't they? They're all about uh, teaching children the things that they they need to know, all about imparting knowledge, imparting understanding. Uh, Yet something really interesting happens when you examine the mottos of different schools. So, uh, Rosalie Public, over over the road, Rosalie, their motto is, Proud Traditions Shaping Futures. That's a nice nice little motto. Uh, Shenton College is more than marks, learning for life. That's a great motto as well. Um, Perth Mod is knowledge is power, which is, you know, take that a little bit differently than maybe it's intended to, but that's a good principle in there. Uh, my own high school, the, the, um, the motto was manners make the man or manners maketh man, which is true. I think that's very true. I just don't re- ever remember detecting any manners amongst me or my classmates with that when I was there. But my absolute favourite is Carlingford High School, where I used to be a, a pastor. Uh, their motto was adventures in learning. And then the picture underneath it was a little Viking longship lined with these little Vikings with shields and, and battle axes, you know, <laughs> adventures in, in pillaging and murdering your way to educational success. Uh, schools, they're, they're academic institutions. Uh, they are about imparting knowledge, imparting information, yet when you do examine their mottos, it does reveal that they, they have a deeper understanding to what they're doing, don't they? Uh, that they actually understand that they're not just passing on information, they're also passing on a way of living. They're also passing on a a way of of relating to other people. Uh, They understand their responsibility in forming the character of the children that are under their care. Uh, They understand in the end that actually with knowledge does come a different way of seeing, a different way of understanding the world, and therefore it comes with a different way of living in the world. Knowledge leads to different living. Uh, That's what our schools do understand, or at least they did understand, when they chose their motto, and then they wrapped it up in a pithy Latin saying, and and there you have it. Now, what does that have to do with us here today? Well, uh, the book of Titus would say that actually our schools are entirely correct. Knowledge does lead to different living, especially when it comes to the knowledge of the truth of Jesus Christ, which we call the gospel. Uh, Come with me to Titus chapter 1, verse 1. It's, you know, half a page back at most in your Bibles, if you could, where we read this, Titus 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. You know, Paul is saying that uh, when you know the truth about Jesus, it leads to godliness. In other words, it changes the way that you live. Uh, knowledge leads to different living. In fact, it leads, in the case of the knowledge of the gospel, it leads to radically different living, transformed living. Uh, and the big question is, 
How does that actually work? How does the truth lead to godliness? How is it that the gospel changes us? Now, that was a terribly important question for Titus, to whom this letter was written. Uh, He's uh, been written this letter from the Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul, of course, was the great missionary apostle who uh, always loved to go to uh, the new place, the new city, the new province, the new people, and to share the, the gospel news of Jesus Christ with them. Uh, and so he was always leaving behind him like a, a new fledgling church uh, and then also leaving behind him often one of his co-workers to teach and to encourage and to love that church. And that's what Titus was. Uh, the fledgling church this time was in the island of Crete and Titus was there to lead them. Only uh, Titus, if you read through the rest of chapter 1, had a very big job in front of him. Uh, there's a lot of unfinished business in this church, according to chapter 1, verse 5. Uh, And there's even a lot of ungodliness in this church, a lot of immaturity and unhealthiness. And so how the knowledge of the truth leads to godliness, how the gospel changes us, that was a a vitally important question to Titus. But it's also a vitally important question to us. Now, please, uh, don't hear me as suggesting that our church is as bad as the church in Crete, which, if you do read the rest of chapter 1, which I do encourage you to do, was pretty bad, to be honest with you. Uh, But... Uh, Certainly, we too are a church that wants to be shaped by the gospel and by the truth about Jesus. And so to understand how that happens amongst us is really important because surely that will set the whole pattern of our life together as a church. Uh, Surely that will give us the understanding we need in order to organize ourselves and, and how we ought to act amongst each other as we live out our life together. And so that's, what the, that's the, the question that's ahead of us, especially as we think about this year that is ahead of us. Uh, but it's really hot today. So let me cut right to the end. Let me be really transparent with you about where I'm going with all of this. Uh, because, yes, if the truth does lead to godliness, as uh, Titus teaches us, then the bottom line is that the application of this passage to us is always going to be that we need to spend time with one another being taught that truth and teaching that truth to one another. We need to spend more time learning about Jesus. And so the end point of all this is really simple. Uh, This is a sermon that I'm giving to you at the beginning of the year to encourage you to come to church, to encourage you to come and to hear sermons, to uh, hear the sermons that will teach you about the truth that leads to godliness. And this is a sermon to encourage you to join one of our growth groups, to spend time with others sitting and opening the word together so that you might encourage each other with the truth that leads to godliness. And, you know, maybe start reading the Bible with one other person, uh, just the two of you sitting down, sharing life uh, with one another. Or maybe uh, this year is the year to start a a personal habit of of Bible reading on your own, uh, spending time with the Lord in prayer and in his word each day, perhaps even using our daily devotionals. All of this. All of this with the goal of learning the truth that leads to godliness, as Paul encourages us here. That's the big conclusion of today. So how am I going to get there? Well, three ways, three things. How does the truth lead to godliness? Uh, Well, one, because of what the truth means from verses 11 to 14. Uh, Secondly, because it is taught and it's modelled to us from verses 1 to 10. And then lastly, very quickly at the end, I'll talk about because of what godliness achieves. But firstly, then, the truth leads to godliness because of what the truth means, what it is. You see, 
some truths don't actually change our lives, do they? Uh, Some truths don't transform us at all. Uh, Whether or not Pluto is a planet makes absolutely no difference to my ordinary daily life, and every right-thinking person knows that it is a planet. (laughs) Other truths, however, are vitally important uh, as I live my life. You know, is this street safe to cross with my children as I walk them to school? That's a a vitally important truth that I want to know and I want to understand. It has a very tangible impact on what I do and how I act. And the point that Paul is making here in verses 11 to 14 is that the gospel is the latter kind, not the former. The gospel is one of those truths that can and must, once you understand it, change our life. Uh, So come back to to 2 verse 11 with me, because here's a really great summary, actually, of the the truth that is being talked about. You get the, the past, the present, and the future of the Christian person. Verses 11 and 14 are the past. They're what Jesus has done for us. And verse 13 is the glorious future. But what's sometimes left out is verse 12, which is the present reality of the Christian person. So just listen very carefully as I read it to you. Listen carefully to verse 12. Um, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It, that is the grace of God, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people of his very own, eager to do what is good. Interesting there. The grace of God is a teacher, an instructor, a a discipliner, a coach even. And salvation, we know, is by grace. It is all a gift of God to us. There's nothing that we can do in order to earn the salvation that we have received. Uh, We cannot win it. Uh, We cannot buy it. Salvation is not by work so that no one can boast. Yet, says Paul, grace does not leave us unchanged in the present. And that's unusual because you would think, actually, if salvation is by grace, then why would I need to change? If I'm just saved by what Jesus has done for me, well, what is the motivation for me to live differently? If it's all Jesus and none none from me, can't I just live whatever way I want and it doesn't really make any difference? Why does it matter now how I live? What is the incentive here to change? And by the way, this was, once upon a time, this was a very big debate. During the Reformation, this was one of the great criticisms that the Catholic Church had against the Protestant movement. Uh, they said, you know, this, this teaching that you're bringing, this grace alone teaching, well, it, it can't be right because grace alone cannot possibly lead to godly living and to good works. If I don't have to in some way work for my salvation, the Catholic Church said, then there's no incentive to change. Uh, but the Reformers, they read their Bibles and they said, no, that's actually not true at all. Something about this grace means quite the opposite. Something about this grace means that we are highly motivated, Paul says in verse 12, to turn from godlessness to godliness. There is something inherent about the truth itself that when we understand it, it changes us. And so what is it? Well, have a look at verse 11 very closely. In fact, notice in verse 11 the word there, salvation. Such an important word to describe our salvation. And of course, what does the word 
salvation? What, what does it mean to be saved? Uh, at least at its most basic level, like you would move if you in, like you would use it in everyday life in a movie or a TV show. What does it mean to be saved? And well, to be saved means uh, you've been you you were in a place of danger, and someone has come along and moved you from that place of danger and taken you to a place of safety. That's what being saved means at its most basic level. Uh, and that's what it means to be saved. You know, someone's taken you from a place of danger to a place of safety. And that's what it means here too. Jesus, our saviour, Jesus is, is our mover. He's the one who's moved us from the place of danger, uh, the place of sin, the place where we were under the judgment and the wrath of God, uh, the place uh, where we were in very great danger. And he has, by his death on the cross, he has moved us to the place of safety. He's moved us to the place of forgiveness, to the place of peace and, and reconciliation with God. And so, of course, if that's what he's done, he's also moved us from the place of disobedience and rebellion against our God to the place of obedience and godly living. I mean, that's what being saved means. Why would you, once having been saved, why would you continue to do the things that once put you in the place of danger? Why would you keep doing exactly those things that meant that you were under the anger and the wrath of God now that Jesus has done the very thing to take you out of it? Once you've been shown mercy by God sending his only son to die for you, why would you not want to go where he leads you? Why would you not want to live in his place of safety? Or as verse 14 puts it, why would you not want to live as a, a purified people that are his very own, eager to do what is good? Now, I mean, let me use a very human example to try and explain this. You know, imagine that I was uh, to say to you that the building is on fire. Now, by the way, the building is not on fire. I say that because once upon a time when I used this illustration, I lost the back row. But it's, you know, imagine that the building was on fire and... How would you respond to that? Well, if you were to come up to me after I'd said that and to say, oh, that's nice. I'm very glad you told us that. Thank you. That was a wonderful sermon, Evan. That was, that was excellent. Then have you really heard what I was saying? You know, if you, surely if you really heard what I was saying, you would, you would get up and you'd run out. No, you wouldn't run out the door. We don't do that these days. You would walk in an orderly fashion, obeying all the directions of the fire wardens in accordance with workplace health and safety, all those sorts of things. But surely... You know, how do you know whether or not you've heard the message? How do you know whether or not you've heard the warning? It's, it's by the way that you respond. And so when I say to you that we are, without Christ, a sinner, under the judgment of God, in the hands of an angry God, and that our only way of salvation to cling is to cling to Jesus Christ as our Saviour, then what is the response of someone who truly understands what I'm saying? Is it the one who carries on living in the room as if it was not on fire, as if not their whole life is on fire? Or is it not the one who says, like it does in verse 12, who says no to ungodliness and to worldly passions and seeks to live that self-controlled, upright and godly life while they wait for Jesus? See, this is really important for us to understand. Inherent in the very gospel itself is this call to action, this call to transformation, 
It's not something that comes after we've heard the gospel. It's something that we hear in the gospel itself. And so getting our our doctrine right, getting our understanding right is absolutely vital. Uh, We can't be sloppy. We need to make sure that we keep reading and understand what the truth about Jesus really is. And having heard that truth, having heard of the salvation we have received, what it now does mean for our lives. And so we do. We do need to read our Bibles. We do need to go to growth group. We do need to come to church. We do need to spend time with each other, learning and teaching and hearing. But there is a difference between the means and the ends here. Understanding the Bible is not an end unto itself. You know, what we're engaged in here is not purely an intellectual exercise. The end of our understanding the truth about Jesus is so that we might live for Jesus as his people, eager to do what is good. And so how does the truth lead to godliness? Well, it just does. Because of what the truth means for our life. Because of what truly understanding that truth means. But secondly then, uh, the truth also leads to godliness because it is taught to us. And even as it is taught to us, it's also modelled to us. The truth and the godliness and the connection between those two, uh, those things, they're communicated to us by example. Uh, They are taught, but they are also caught. Uh, And so when this passage kind of comes to us, it also reminds us in verses 1 to 10 that that it comes, but it it particularly seems to come from those who are older than us, those who are are more experienced in the faith than we are. Uh, You can see it most clearly in verses 3 and 4. Have a look at there now. This is where it's really spelt out, uh, where the older women are specifically instructed Um, to help and to instruct the younger women. Pick it up at at verse 3, would you? Uh, Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Do you see the logic there? In older women, they're to, to live in a certain way, And they're even to teach. They're to teach what is good. And having done that, then they will be able to urge the younger women. Then they will be able to urge them, help them to to put the truth of the gospel into practice in their life as well. Now, I think exactly the same thing is implied uh, for the older men and the younger men in verses 6 to 8 as well. Paul, he speaks to Titus as an older man, and he does that. He he urges him, Titus, to be an example to the younger men as he teaches them as well. Uh, specifically to be an example to the younger men in the area of of good works and and integrity, uh, which is the same thing that he will go on to say actually to all who understand the truth about Jesus. But what this does mean is that in our life together as a church, we are teachers of one another. We are teachers of one another. But we are also models to one another. Models of what? the truth put into action looks like, models of what godliness looks like. And we learn these things from each other. In a church, there's a vast web of relationships amongst us all, and Paul sees that web being used to teach, to teach the truth to each other, particularly older to younger, 
And he sees it as kind of almost like good spiritual antibiotics working throughout the whole body of Christ, cleansing it and, and bringing it vitality. You know, the truth, it, it kills off infection. It stops um, the, the rot from spreading. It promotes what is sound and what is helpful. And this is very helpful. Because in many ways, this answers the age-old question. How should the ministry of a church work? Should it be organized or should it be organic? Uh, you know, most churches would sort of see themselves on uh, a continuum somewhere between those two things. You know, some churches are, are very organized, they're very structured. Uh, and nothing happens unless the authorized person does it or at least uh, des- decides that it should be done. On the other hand, some churches are very organic, uh, very unstructured, and things just kind of happen. And uh, sometimes even official things can be seen as inauthentic in those sorts of churches. And, you know, I've been in both those sorts of churches. I've served in both those sorts of churches. But I think what Paul is saying here is that actually in a healthy church, it will be both of those things at the same time. It will be organised and it will be organic. Yes, we have leaders here in our church. We have programs, we have activities, we have all sorts of things that we do and that we do together. But this is far from all the ministry that happens in our church. Uh, That's just the seen ministry in our church. There is also the unseen ministry in our church. Uh, And that unseen ministry in our church is, I imagine, actually the bulk of the ministry in our church. What is seen, I'm sure, is only ever the tip of the iceberg. And so I regularly give thanks to God for what is unseen, for the ministry that goes on just as we we speak with one another, as we spend time with one another, as we catch up over a meal, as you send that, that text to someone that you know is going through a hard time, as we, you, you catch up over a coffee and, and, and pray with one another, all sorts of different ways that I know that people teach and encourage and model godliness to one another. So many things that I know I do not see, and yet God does see. And, you know, when someone wants to do a new thing in our our church, uh, start a new activity or something in our church, uh, even though I'm the senior minister of our church, it's not my job to to stifle something just because it's not come from an official person. It's rather, it's it's my role to encourage it and to see it uh, to be as faithful and as fruitful as it possibly can be. Every single one of us ought to consider... How can I encourage godliness in our church? How can I model what the truth that leads to godliness looks like? Every single one of us has a role to play. Some of you might think, I don't know that I have much to offer. What could anyone possibly learn from me? I want to say everyone has something to offer. Not our perfection. For no one is perfect. Tyler said it brilliantly this morning, didn't he? You know, what's the the first requirement of coming to a growth group? What's the first requirement of being part of the church? It's acknowledging that we are far from perfect. Acknowledging that we are all in great need and none of us have our lives completely together. We've all got a long way to go. And so what do we have to share with each other? Not our perfection, but our progress. Our struggles, our experience... of putting the truth of the gospel into practice in our lives in all sorts of different situations. Uh, Some of us, you know, 
We've been working for a long time. There's people here who, who have lots to learn from you. They're, they're new in their careers, new in their jobs. They need to learn from you what it means to be godly in the workplace. Some of you have been parents for a, a long time. Your children are all grown up. There's people here with little kids. We need to learn from you. How can we raise our children to know and to, to love the Lord Jesus? How can we love them and care for them? Uh, some of you here, are you've, you've been retired for a while, but there's others here who are heading towards retirement and uh, they need to learn from you how they can use their retirement well in the cause of Jesus Christ, our Saviour. We have lots to learn from each other, but not our perfection, but our progress. Now, as to the godliness which is modelled here, uh, which does take up a lot of this passage, I could say much. In fact, I really could give a whole other sermon on all the different things that uh, Paul talks about here. I will say that one thing that really stood out to me as I read this was self-control. Uh, how often self-control is repeated in the passage. It's taught actually to every group of people uh, except the older women. Older women, whoever you are, and I'll just, I'll just look at the stained glass windows as I say this. Older women, whoever you are... Um, you're off the hook. Although, actually, the truth is, when it talks about how all the women are to live, I can't help but imagine that self-control will be required for that too. Self-control seems to be a, a really important thing in this passage. So, you know, come and chat to me about it afterwards, or I'm thinking about where I might slip in a sermon on self-control somewhere uh, down the track. Uh, but today, we're, we're, we're thinking just about the process. We're just thinking about our life together as a church. And so before I finish up, I do want to say this does go a long way to explaining why our church is the way that it is, uh, both why there is such an emphasis on spending time in God's word amongst us, but also why there's such an emphasis on spending time with each other in our life together. Because we do want everyone to keep hearing about the truth that, that leads to godliness, but we also do want to make sure that everyone has opportunities to spend time with each other. Uh, to learn from each other within this community that we call a church, uh, and just time to, to be together. And so I do want to say to you that, uh, you, know, I, you know, I want you to come to church, I want you to be here, I, I want you to listen to sermons, I want you to, to participate in our services, but I also want you to experience all that church is. And it's much more than just the time that we spend sitting here together. And if all your experience of church is, is just this time where we sit in this room, if, you know, if you're not sticking around for morning tea afterwards, if you're not heading down to the park afterwards, if you're not uh, you know, uh, part of a growth group or you aren't, you aren't just throwing yourself into the community that is St. Matthew's, then I've got to say you aren't getting the full experience. You aren't getting the very thing that Paul is describing here in Titus 2. And not only are you impoverishing your own chance to learn from the many other, many wonderful saints that are here at St. Matt's, you're also impoverishing St. Matthew's because you have lots to contribute as well. Because the truth leads to godliness as it is taught and as it's modelled to us as well. But let's finish up. You've done well. It's warm. It's a big passage. But so very quickly then, there is a third reason why the truth leads to godliness, and that's because of what godliness achieves. Have a look just at the very end of verse 5 and verse 8 and verse 10. There's a little idea that gets repeated three times. Verse, 
Verse 5, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands. Why? So that no one will malign the word of God. And verse 8, a soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed, because they have nothing bad to say about us. And then verse 10, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God, our Saviour, attractive. There is a beauty when we demonstrate the godliness that the truth of Jesus leads us to. When it can be seen in our lives and in the life of our church. Godly living adorns the gospel because godly living flows directly from the gospel. And we live in a world where the gospel of Jesus Christ is maligned. Where it is condemned. Where it is unattractive. We live in a world now where those who believe in the gospel are made to feel ashamed. That's what they want. They want us to be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel in our world today, it's no longer quaint. It's no longer old-fashioned. It's it's no longer just kind of neutral. It's more and more, it's increasingly being seen as wicked and evil and even actively harmful. And attempts to suppress the gospel even in our country, well, they are coming in in all sorts of subtle ways, they're already here. And in that kind of world where we find ourselves, what has God given us to make the teaching of our God and Saviour attractive? We have the godliness that flows naturally from the gospel in our lives. Now, don't make the mistake, don't imagine that uh, this is somehow saying to us, If we just kind of live a godly life, suddenly people around us will magically be saved. Uh, This is not that terrible quote that's so often falsely attributed to Francis of Assisi. You know, you've heard it before. Preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. It's a terrible thing to say. Preaching the gospel will always require words. But how do we show the world that they are wrong about the gospel when they hear it? How do we show them that it is beautiful? How do we show them that it is powerful? How do we show them that there is nothing to be ashamed of? And the answer is by showing them what a gospel-shaped life looks like, by practicing what we preach. That is how we make the gospel of our God and Saviour attractive to our world. And so, my friends, let grace be our teacher. And may the truth about Jesus lead to godliness in all of our lives and in our church. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, the grace of God that offers salvation to all people has appeared to us. And what a privilege that is. We don't deserve it. We've done nothing to earn it. And yet you have given it to us anyway because of your boundless love and care for us. And so we ask, Lord, help us to say no to sin and to ungodliness and to worldly passions and lusts. Let us live, Lord, self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for what you have promised us, the appearing of our Lord and Saviour. And Lord, we pray, save us from the very real place of danger that we once were under. 
Please help us to live that pure life that comes from a right understanding of your gospel. Give us that eagerness to do good, an eagerness to encourage one another, an eagerness to serve one another, an eagerness to learn from one another, an eagerness to adorn the teaching of our God and Saviour with the godliness of our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.